Welcome to What in the World, a project initiated by Hungry for Life International. Today's podcast is titled Part 2, What Does Anxiety in the Workplace Look Like and How Can You Manage Theirs? Jess will be interviewing Dave Blundell, so grab your headphones, sit back, relax, and listen as we conclude a two-part series on where leadership anxiety comes from and where to spend your time as a leader. Welcome back to part two of this two-part series of learning to manage anxiety, yours and theirs. Um, Alongside that topic, there's a lot of subtopics that we've been kind of going over and covering, and we welcome Dave back. And um, if you haven't caught part one, I suggest pausing this right now and going back to part one. And that one focuses on internal anxiety and some tools for self-help there. And I think that's it. Uh, For those jumping in right now, hopefully you didn't, hopefully you started with part one, but systems theory. Yep. Recap. Yep. Systems theory is when, is the concept of when something affects one part of a system, all the parts of the system are affected. And we see it in really every aspect of societal functioning. What we specifically focused on last time was on family systems theory or relationship systems theory Mm -hmm. and and applied to relationships families and organizations is the concept that the emotional functioning of one person in the system will impact the entire will impact the entire system Mm -hmm. and i i liken that to the the concept of a mobile that's above a baby's bed right and you know you you touch one part of the mobile and Mm -hmm. and all the other pieces of it move Mm -hmm. think about family systems theory like that you want something happens to one person in the system and it jiggles around and affects all the other people who are also in that system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So the reason we're talking about this is you probably th- are wondering, what does this have to do with overseas development? Well, nothing really. <laughs> it has to do with relationships and yes. organizational life. Yeah. And as, a, as an organization, we always strive to be our healthiest self and function best so we can serve our partners exactly. best. And so as a staff, we're reading this book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. Um, if Again, if you're on YouTube, you can see me pointing it out. It's by Steve Kess. And it offers a lot of insights into recognizing anxiety in yourself, some triggers, some tools, and um, how to how to deal with people who are emotionally reactive and how to control that and be the non-anxious one in the group. So um, you had a quote that you wanted to start with here. Yeah. And it's, it's from this book, which, which is why, and this quote really draws out the connection between the fact that we have to start with managing anxiety in myself before I start to treat an organization that's experiencing chronic emotional reactivity. And it's, he says, never, Never try to jump into fixing a system or organization or any set of relationships until we first do the work of understanding ourselves as leaders, our family of origin issues and, and, and realities, the, our, our emotional reactivity. So don't, don't try and fix an organization unless you've first done the inner work of trying to understand yourself. Don't try and respond to organizational uh, chronic anxiety unless you're paying attention or have paid attention to what's built you to be the person that you are. Mm -hmm. And maybe this belonged in the first, the first half, but can we talk about family of origin for a second? Cause that's, that's in the book quite a bit. Um, How does that play a factor into emotional health? Yeah, I think, I think we touched on that Mm -hmm. because when we talked about uh, the, the childhood, what word did you use? Childhood 
vows. vows. Childhood vows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all are the way that we are because of the environment that we grew up in. Mm-hmm. That applies to every human in the world. And unless we really understand more objectively the environment we grew up in and how it affects us today, it's really, really hard to be an emotionally healthy leader. And so that's why even to the degree where personally I've experienced so much health from therapy, from understanding family of origin, things that led to who I am today, to the to the degree where if a leader hasn't done that work, I don't know that I could trust them hmm. because that's such foundational work to being a healthy leader. How does one do that? How does one do what? The family of origin work. I mean, there's oh. there's a new another new term that I found in this book called a genogram. 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 Yeah. What? How does that benefit? How does that benefit uh, an organizational health? Yeah, and and that's that's something that goes beyond my expertise and something that. If someone wants to explore that, you can do that in a trusted coaching relationship. But I would recommend starting with a therapist or a counselor mm-hmm. who's skilled in family systems theory specifically. Mm-hmm. A genogram is just an objective exercise for you to look at how relationships, even grandparents, second and third generation mm-hmm. before you were ever on the earth, affected who we are today and how we react today. And so it's a way of objectively looking at family of origin mm-hmm. And relationships within our families that contribute to how we are now. Yeah. Um, jumping into external factors of of anxiety, what would be some examples of that? Like we talked about internal factors, like you know the childhood vows, and but like let's define external factors for your anxiety. Yeah, I think Steve Cuss says it really well. What we're talking about is managing us managing our own chronic reactivity. And then as a leader, we're always needing to figure out how to manage other people. So that's what I mean by internal and external. Managing my internal right. stuff, yeah. emotional reactivity, and then managing other people and their chronic anxiety as well that mm-hmm. show up in families and organizations. That's what we mean by external okay. and internal. Okay. Have you, either within Hungry for Life or other organizations that you have coached, how does this play out mainly? Like, is there a common thread? Are there usually the problem people, as we call it? Or how does this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And the short answer is yes in Hungry for Life. Yes in any organization, in church, mm. in any society, in any two-person relationship, in any family, uh, family systems theories. Family systems theory applies. And we can use any of these concepts in any system of any relationship. And so I, I would say for the first oh, the first 20 years of my leadership, I, I would manage people and situations based on the face value of what I saw in that person mm-hmm. uh, without realizing that behind that person, there is a whole set of systems and things going on that we can't see mm-hmm. that are affecting how that person shows up to work every day. Mm-hmm. And the big change for me in, in leadership is realizing that behind every person, there's there's all of those sets of factors and all those systems that are who they are today. And they represent all of those systems and thoughts when they show up to work. Mm-hmm. You're When you come to work, you're representing the, the family systems that you grew up in. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes what I see in people in terms of their behavior 
is the symptom of something, not the thing to deal with. Right, right. And that's been the, the, the big change for me is learning the context behind the people. And when, when I see something in someone, to not jump on and try and address symptoms, mm. but to but to initiate a conversation that gets you know, behind the curtains into what led us to being who we are. Mm-hmm. So the book also talks a lot about process versus content yep. and how a lot of organizations get caught up in content over process. And yep. how would you say that process and content get in the way of effective leadership and how does it increase anxiety? Yep. And it does come off of what, you know, it does help to understand what we just said about the context behind the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were times in Hungry for Life's history where we would get caught up too much on content. Content is where we're trying to agree, where we're talking about some issue that's in front of us. And and we get emotionally wrapped up into the substance of the conflict. He said, she said type conversations, uh, conversations that that focus on uh, perspectives and uh, actions that someone didn't like that they said, things that people said that they took offense to. Mm-hmm. The content is the content of, of unhealthy conversations. Mm-hmm. And that's where most conflict in organizations stays. Mm-hmm. The uh, Another book refers to it as the what happened conversation. Okay. Understanding the processes is stepping away from the content of the conversation the, mm-hmm. the guts of the conversation and examining the relationship system that these conversations are happening in the relational processes that these conversations are happening in and realizing that every person that's a part of this conflict or conversation is coming is 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 coming from their own relational context and how every person shows up is symptomatic of of their background and family of origin uh, but too much content. I'm dealing with uh, working with one organization where the, the the two sides to the organization, the two sides to the conflict, are so caught up in the content of their arguments, trying to convince each other of who's wrong or right. Mm. And no matter how much I have talked to them about this, they're so entrenched into the content of the conversation, they're not able to see the need to focus on changing the essence of the relationship, mm. the process that they're using in order to engage in a conversation. How do you get people to see? You can't. You can't. I mean, that's... Good that's, luck, Chuck. <laughs> that, you can't make anybody do anything. And that's the concept of change. Is right, right. You, you you can't make anybody change. You can create the environment for change as a leader, but you can't make someone change. So what would be an example of creating an environment for that? Like, specifically, just a board meeting, let's say, and everyone's just disagreeing on something. How would you as the leader try to get everybody on the same page and create that environment where we can be process focused and for everybody yep. to just like take a chill pill and a notch down and like take a deep breath and get rid of some anxiety. Yep. And like, how does, how, how do you do that? Yeah. That's so situational that it's hard to come up with a, an answer to that, but I but guess so. I think you just, players. yeah, it does. But I think you, you've sort of said it well as if, if, the, the content, if everybody's focused on the content mm-hmm. and there's emotional reactivity and sparks mm-hmm. going all over the place, sometimes the best thing to do is just shut the meeting down. Yeah, okay. Because you people are so emotionally reactive that they're not able to see process stuff. They're just caught up on content. Right. Uh, and then you might need to come back. You, you would need to come back at it. Yeah. Having helped people how to have better conversations. 
it's conversation management, psychological safety, creating environments where there's listening and asking each other's questions to understand. That's changing the nature of the relationship. If people are just lobbing arguments back and forth, changing the nature of the relationship is simply helping them, if they're willing, to listen, be curious, Mm -hmm. ask questions, to make I statements and not you statements. Mm -hmm. It's principles of healthy conversation management that create environments of safety. Yeah. Another thing the author talks about a couple times, at least I picked up on, was the narcissist scale. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, there's a scale? Oh, boy. So, like, um, are the... (laughs) I don't mean to like call them these people because maybe I am one. I don't know. But like um, when you're dealing with (laughs) people on the scale of that, is it best to maybe like either cut them out of that meeting or is it best to try to because like they're I don't like sacred. Okay, maybe I'll just leave the question open ended. What what do you do with difficult personalities like that? First of all, I think any leader can easily struggle with narcissism. Mm. I think we're all on the narcissism scale one way or another. Some are just better at managing it than others. I think it's kind of inherited. It's inherited stuff that, that comes with leadership. Mm-hmm. So first of all, being curious about that's a good thing. But yeah, going back to even our own experience as an organization related to what you just talked about is there's some people where they're so chronically reactive, they're not able to, to change the process, they're so stuck in content mm-hmm. that you have to protect, the leader has to protect the relationship system from the toxic, unhealthy person. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really hard. That's really hard, especially if you struggle more on the enmeshment side of things mm-hmm. where you're wanting everybody to be okay all the time. Um, but the concept of differentiation and what that looks like externally in day-to-day leadership is is. We often have somebody that is in the organization that's chronically reactive, chronically emotionally bent out of shape, seems to be always frustrated at what's going on in the organization. And again, their reactivity will infect the whole organization. The temptation sometimes is to focus on that person, the symptomatic person, Mm -hmm. and address their issues and try to placate and try to help them to understand and, and take different approaches. And that can suck a leader's energy away from the healthy system to the unhealthy system. Right. Uh, and the, the, I remember early in my leadership days as a pastor, I would evaluate how I spent my week. And there were times where I would spend an inordinate amount of time on the most symptomatic people, oh, yeah. ignoring the, the rest of the healthy parts of the system. Right. And so, so when you've got someone who's chronically reactive, mm-hmm. it's, and, and you see no signs of teachability or change, the best thing to do is not focus on their pathology, not looking for more data or more for more information on how you could change right. their situation, yeah. but to invest in making the, the, the rest of the system so healthy mm. that that person doesn't have life within the organization, that their chronic reactivity doesn't infect everybody else mm-hmm. in the organization. Eventually, one of two things will happen. Eventually, they will realize that they no longer fit. If, if, if the wind's taken out of their sails and they can't infect the emotional condition of the whole organization, eventually they'll start to feel like they don't fit here mm-hmm. and they, they don't have a, a place here where they can function. And 
they'll sometimes they'll just slide away from the organization it, because the whole is so healthy it doesn't put up with that chronic reactivity right. uh, and and there was a time in HFL's history where we realized with some of the frustrations that we are experiencing relationally here where the best place for us to focus is not on the the places of chronic anxiety but on making our culture so healthy mm-hmm. improving the whole system mm-hmm. and spending more time on making the system healthier. So eventually one of two things will happen. Right. They'll either start to slide away from the organization and be less influential, or a leader sometimes has to say, you can no longer infect this organization mm-hmm. and there needs to be a parting of the ways here because mm-hmm. my greater commitment is to the whole the more than the whole. individual, yeah. the mm-hmm. healthy whole mm-hmm. more than the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are really tough. Those are really tough conversations to have. Yeah. And, and, Steve Cuss talks about that in his book, and so does Ed Friedman. He he applies his work to congregations specifically. He okay. was a rabbi. Okay. And so his work is in in congregations, and okay. his premise is that same thing: that if you got somebody unhealthy in the congregation, that's chronically creating stress for everyone else. The best leadership thing is to separate that person from the healthy system. Mm-hmm. Same in a family. If you've got oh, that boy. unhealthy uncle who constantly stirs up trouble constantly emotionally reactive yeah. uh, is, is is constantly sucking the life and the energy out of the room the best thing a leader in a family can do is to separate that person from the healthy family and again that's where Friedman's book called failure of nerve comes yeah. in and uh, these are really tough conversations to have and the more we go back to what we talked about last time the more differentiated the more emotionally healthy you are as a leader the greater your ability to recognize that mm-hmm. and to have those hard conversations mm-hmm. of of the whole needs to be more important than mm-hmm. uh, a few chronic uh, a few um, reactive people. Well, because those people, I've heard it put this way before, is they'll walk around their house, figuratively speaking, with a box of matches, just lighting everything on fire and waiting for you to come put it out. Yeah. And yeah, that's they, a great way of putting it. They'll just be standing on their porch being like, why aren't you coming with your fire hose yep. to put out my fire when they're the ones who started it? And so the differentiated person, unfortunately, that lets their house burn. And yep. it's, that's, again, again, in the first part, I think we talked about um, being able to sit in that tension yep. as, as the leader or as the person dealing with the overreactor. It's hard. It is hard to watch somebody Scream and shout at you, again, yeah. figuratively speaking, hopefully. <laughs> come put out my fire. Come put out my fire. When it's like, well, you started it. so Yeah, and that might mean removing the person that's yeah. got the matches. Yeah. Um, and and you have to do that. And it, again, you said it last time again, where in a Christian circles, it's even mm-hmm. harder. We're taught yeah. about empathy. Jesus left the 99 to go after the one. <laughs> and, and those are all really great illustrations, yeah. but they're they're applied in the wrong way mm-hmm. uh, if again that's not what jesus would do yeah. he yes he would care about the one yes he would be connected to the people that were a part of it mm-hmm. but there were times where he also was full of nerve and got in the face of people that needed to be separated from the healthy mm-hmm. for the sake of the whole and so i think he's a better example yeah yeah, and I, I, I'm really liking this whole word differentiated. It's going to be yeah. my new motto of life. <laughs> it is the number one concept of systems theory. Okay. Whether you're applying it to families or organizations. Yeah. It's the kind of core 
cornerstone thing, principle or mm-hmm. principle that helps you. Well, yeah. Think about if, if every single one of our staff members could get to this place of healthy differentiation. Woo! Like, that would be pretty incredible yep. as, as a system to work with that. Because then everyone can be their best self and bring bring forward yes. their giftings. Their and And know when to stop and know when to let somebody else pick that up. And, you know, not get territorial over, over that's my project or that's, you know, whatever it is. And, um, yeah, I'm envisioning it now. It's, we do a pretty good job, I think. But it does go back to the first, first podcast Mm -hmm. in this series, which you can't have an old whole organization get to that place unless everybody's willing to do the inner work themselves. Yeah. Because again, you don't launch into trying to fix a system unless you don't understand your role in it. Mm-hmm. That's why you're forcing us to read this. Dave is forcing us. <laughs> Help. No, I'm just kidding. Um, not only that, we had to chat about it with staff this morning. No, it yeah. was good. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a great team that's mm-hmm. willing to learn, mm-hmm. and grow together. And yeah. part of our professional development is involved book studies. And I thought this was, yeah, this was an easy read. Well, it was quite funny in my, in my little subgroup, yeah. uh, we had one person who self-admittedly would say they are more anxious. And then one person was like, I don't know what that word means. It's never been a part of my life. And (laughs) not to those words exactly, but you know. Did that represent the scale of um, detachment versus enmeshment? Possibly. Okay. We'll leave that. Possibly. I'm not too sure. You know, it was a TJ was there, but... (laughs) Anxiety may be a, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the word that's, that everyone's using that talks, that it's could buzzy. be, it's buzzy. Yeah. And so I, I think it could be misunderstood. I, mm. I actually like the term chronically reactive. Okay. Or emotional better. Reactivity. Sure. Yeah. Um, but it's also anxiety brings with it something that's really healthy, which is understanding where we're feeling it in our body and ex- right. being curious about what's bending us out of shape. Mm-hmm. That's very anxiety like yeah but if you were to interchange the word the words you know chronic anxiety with chronic emotional reactivity that was helpful for me Mm -hmm. yeah i think good point because there are people who it it is a chronic anxiety is a real thing it causes a lot of panic attacks and it's like uh it's under the mental health umbrella and what we're talking about is more just like chronic reactor and the chronic right yeah chronic emotional reactivity yeah okay now now again there are people who are chronically emotionally reactive that Mm -hmm. also struggle with the mental health absolutely anxiety yes yes and i don't want to even veer into an area of expertise that's not mine nope me neither and so highly respect that and so i think i think for i think for the day-to-day functioning of relationships Thinking about chronic anxiety as uncontrolled emotional reactivity okay. was helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Uncontrolled emotional reactivity. Yep. Reactivity. Reactivity. Yeah. It's hard. Even my husband last week, I had an overreaction, <laughs> to say the least. 
And it came off the heels of me, like, chastising my children for not being able to control their emotion. He's like, how do you expect our kids to control their emotion when you can't? So it's... Yeah, he's right. Calm, anxious presence. Yeah. Or... Or not calm, anxious presence. That's a, <laughs> that's a bit of an oxymoron. Uh, uh, calm presence. Yeah. If if the leader in a system can be calm, non-anxious mm, presence, mm-hmm. presence, then that that infects the whole the whole group eventually. Yep, sure does. Don't us parents know that? Yeah. Oh boy, could go into stories. Um, what are some tools that dissolve this chronic overreactivity? In, I think what, well, whether it's families or organizations, it's strong leadership. It's strong leadership. Mm-hmm. It's leaders that understand these principles. It's leaders that understand that are differentiated. It's leaders that are connected to the people, but also distinct from them. Mm-hmm. And that when chronic reactivity or emotional reactivity shows up, a leader who is able to stay present not mirror the reactivity, not not jack up the activity by reactivity. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the most important part of any relationship system mm-hmm. to to move it in the direction of being healthy. Is a leader that that's differentiated, a leader that can can be a, a calm presence when when there's the manifestation of reactivity. Mm-hmm. Because when people see that, it automatically starts to calm people down yeah and as a leader if you react people will react yeah that's certainly been the case for me when i've not been able to control my reactions that makes the situation 100 percent of the time mm-hmm. more more anxious more reactive but in that space like we talked about last time where i have the ability to recognize what's going on in me and show up in a way that's not reactive mm-hmm. that is the first step to helping the whole system Mm-hmm. become less reactive yeah again don't us parents know that yeah. oh man <laughs> that's the first place we get to practice it on the most important people in our lives oh boy yeah. <laughs> can i tell a that's quick a funny story topic. that maybe we can cut out i was it was dinner time all the worst things happen at dinner time my kids were like i don't like this i'm like then don't eat it they're like but i really don't like it i'm like well then don't eat it I said that probably 10 times. And then I said, then don't eat it. And I just freaked out, blew my lid. And then they all started crying. (laughs) So there, there is that example at play. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. They should just eat their food. That's, that's the moral of the story. Um, back. So in that situation, Mm -hmm. looking back on it, how would you apply this conversation to that? Oh, well, hands down, like. People will push you. The overreactors, yes. they will always push their limits. Yes. And growth happens when you can stay differentiated. And you can stay... Um, if I would have stayed calm that whole time, they would have diffused. They would have gotten tired of that. Yeah. That would have been boring for them. Yeah. And I think they would have chosen one of the two alternatives What you were talking about. Either choose to leave or I would have probably removed them. Yeah. If, yeah. But the fact that I blew my gasket they blew theirs too so mm -hmm. yeah and that is first of all thanks for being transparent there i think that that should stay in and that's okay that's a fantastic part of this conversation because if we take that and apply it to our organizations and our churches and our Mm -hmm. our 
other communities and relationship systems we're in. That's the that's the sweet spot of mm-hmm. making making a relationship system healthy is those people are needed. And that's why Friedman talks about a failure of nerve. Mm-hmm. Um, that that in that moment, uh, being a leader full of nerve would have just stayed calm, non-anxious. Eat your food or you're not going to... Or starve. Or starve. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that takes a whole lot of self-regulation and self-discipline mm-hmm. to react. And that's where yeah. he talks about oftentimes there's a failure of nerve in leaders. And they'll give in to the most chronically anxious people in the system. Right. And... And focus on them rather than the whole. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a fantastic illustration that really exemplifies what we're talking about. Yeah. It's harder harder said than done, though. But that's... Uh, Especially with the relationships yeah. that mean the most to us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the points that he... One of the tools that Cass talks about was proximity reduces anxiety. And I Ooh. thought that was interesting because... Summarize that. Well... If you're having a conflict or you're dealing with something with somebody, uh, a natural gut reaction would just be to like back off and, you know, give yourself some space or whatever. But um, can, let me find it because it was it was a really good point. And it's something that I intuitively would not have done or instinctively probably would have gone the other way, like distance myself from somebody, okay. but stay connected with them. And, you know, I'm going to try and find it because it was a good point. But um Hmm. Let's see here. Reframing. No. I wondered if it had to do with the idea that sometimes we do need to remove ourselves from chronically anxious situations in order to be more objective, but maybe not. Oh, here. Intentionally move towards the person you are struggling with. Oh. Uh, I'll just read it. We'll see where it goes. There's something very, very dark in us that becomes self-righteous when we're anxious or hurt by someone it plays out most keenly in the in the story we tell ourselves about a person with whom we are in conflict Mm -hmm. by the time we are done with an anger fantasy which we didn't actually talk about but basically being angry in your head about somebody um, the person is subhuman we have stripped him or her of the nuance and dimension and made the person worse than he or she really is. Yeah. This dynamic is it also happens in gossip, triangulation, which again, again, we didn't talk about, and judgment. And the solution to de-escalate anxiety happens to line up with the gospel, move toward the person. Um, Jesus commanded it because we don't want to do it. We want to stay removed, gossip about the person to others, build a case against her in our minds. Mm-hmm. But all that leads to more anxiety. Could it be that Jesus commanded us to love our enemy because he knows what proximity is and what helps you see more um, someone's humanity? Wow. Yeah. I just thought that was an interesting point. Yeah. And and what I'm reflecting on there is what I said earlier about, you know, people that need to be removed from the organization. That's mm-hmm. when all else fails. Yeah. Right. Yes. You know, yeah. that's when it's gone on for so long and there's no sign of teachability. Yeah. But what I love about that, and I'm remembering it, as you said, it is, is that, and this was in the previous books we looked at as a staff and studied together, is that mm-hmm. whole idea of, of stay close to the people that you're in conflict with, because when we don't, we tend to invent mm. motives for them. Right. We tend to misjudge their actions according to my own filters. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to make up a story. Brené Brown calls it the story we tell ourselves about why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's never generous. <laughs> it's usually negative. Yeah. And so I love that concept. And that, that really does take differentiation because that could be a, 
getting closer to someone who's mm-hmm. chronically reactive uh, could be really unsettling. Yeah, because maybe they think you're bringing the, the fire hose to put right. out their flame, right? So right. that's, yeah, and you have to manage that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of other good points. Another one I liked was playfulness acts as a release valve for tension. And just like, yeah. I mean, I liked I liked the idea idea of injecting humor or injecting um, like something absurd into a meeting just to, you know, like release tension and just. Yeah, you're great at that. You really are. I think it's a problem sometimes. We haven't experienced it as a problem. Sometimes. Well, sometimes I, I, um, my, my reaction to discomfort is a joke, and it's not always good, because sometimes it's jokes are not, especially yeah, untimely jokes are not welcome. So, no, but you, I think you do really an effective job at living out what that quote's all about. Is oh, well, thank you using humor and lightness to diffuse a situation mm-hmm. when it's appropriate. And... When it's appropriate. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes. Any other tools that come to mind before we start to wrap up here? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. There's so many. I I think the the next best, best tool, if, if this has piqued anybody's interest, mm-hmm. is to look into it more. I think starting with mm-hmm. Steve Cuss's book, Leadership Anxiety, is a great place to start. There's Edwin Friedman, the book called Failure of Nerve, right. Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. Uh, there's... A great podcast that is with Ruth Haley Barton and Steve Cuss. Season... I listened to one last week. Did you? Yeah, it, it was really good. Her podcast is yeah. called Strengthening the Soul of yeah. Your Leadership, mm-hmm. and it's season 16. So maybe we can put that in the, yep. in the production notes to mm-hmm. remind people where they are. If you don't love reading or and you're into podcasts, mm-hmm. I would I would start with that podcast because that conversation between Ruth Haley Barton and Steve Cuss is an excellent introduction to the whole concept. The paper shredder next door is ending our podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, that totally distracted me. But that's kind of all, like, this was, this is what I was going to say. Yeah. If people really want to dive into this, is some, this something Full Well would help with? Yeah, for sure. We are okay. helping organizations process leadership anxiety on their teams. And, okay. And as we said in the last podcast, we're working with leaders to apply these principles in their organizations to diffuse and deal with, you know, conflict, chronic reactivity, mm-hmm. uh, struggles between people who that never seem to get better. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, absolutely reach out to us and we can have a conversation about what this means for an organization mm-hmm. and how you as a leader can grow in this area so that your organization can become healthier because transform leaders transform their organizations. Mm-hmm. Changed people, change people. Changed people, change people. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Well, hey, thanks for coming on again. Great as always. You do a great job with these. Oh, thank you. So do you. (laughs) All right. Signing off. See you later. Thanks for listening to What in the World, where we seek to educate and inspire. Here at Hungry for Life, we are passionate about your group having a global impact in eradicating needless suffering. For more information, head over to our website at hungryforlife.org. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you may listen to podcasts. Tune in every other week for another conversation about what is happening at Hungry for Life.